So we're, we're continuing our series in Revelation, the seven letters, and we're about halfway through at the moment. And if you've missed any of that, don't worry, you can catch up online. Go and listen to the podcast. There's some really great preachers there from, from Ryan, Steph, and David. I would encourage you to, to go and have a listen. And Ryan, all those weeks ago, uh, began this series so well by cleaning up what can be often described as a messy and muddled understanding of Revelation. No other book in the New Testament is less read and less understood. Even great theologians of the past past give it a wide berth. Martin Luther didn't really fancy it. He thought it was an offensive piece of work. And John Calvin considered it very doubtful that it should have even been included in the New Testament at all. And that's one extreme. On the other extreme, you've got those attempting to kind of predict future events from it, you know, cracking those codes, even declaring that based on their interpretation of the text in relation to events in the present day, that the end is nigh and that the Antichrist has now come. Who thought it would be a fuzzy blonde-haired man, I wonder? I'll let you decide who that is. You know, Revelation wasn't the only apocalyptic writing at the time. I don't know if you knew that. There were numerous apocalyptic writings produced between about 100 B.C., and AD 100, and this type of writing had distinct features and form, yet there was something very distinct that set John's vision apart from all other. John Drain puts it like this. Revelation looks forward to a future intervention from God in the affairs of this world rather than some other spiritual world. And it's his understanding, its understanding is fundamentally different from that of other apocalyptists who without exception regarded this world and all its affairs as irretrievably evil. To them, history was a meaningless enigma, and the sooner its course was stopped, the better. And I was was thinking about John's vision, this piece of writing, this book of Revelation, and the fact that it was kind of the the chosen epilogue for the Bible, for Scripture, And as I was thinking about that, my mind kind of wandered back to the beginning. As we're thinking about the end, my mind wandered back to the beginning where it all started in Genesis. I had a friend of mine who, uh, many years ago when he was a young man, and he wasn't a Christian, and he decided to pick up the Bible one day. And he had a look at it, and he thought, no, I'm not going through all of that. I'll just read Genesis, the beginning, and Revelation, the end, and that'll be it. Little did he know that God met him in that moment, and he came to know Jesus just through reading Genesis and Revelation. Wow. (laughs) And in a similar vein to Revelation, the Genesis account wasn't the only creation story. Don't panic if you didn't know that, all right? There were a number of creation and flood mythologies at the time. These accounts depicted gods in little g, who unlike Yahweh, were subject to nature. But what sets apart the Jewish account from creation from all the others was this. Genesis speaks of a God who brings life, not death. Where there was darkness, came light. Where there was chaos, he brings order and peace. Dave, a few weeks ago, discussed God's shalom. And in the midst of this, us, not separated, not distant or alone, but in the very presence of the Father with him, walking with him in the cool of the day. You see, Revelation speaks of the same God whose desire is to bring life, not death, light and justice. And when it seems evil is one and there is just chaos, 
Revelation speaks of the Lamb who, was, who has the final word. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. There is hope. Revelation 21, 3 to 5 puts it like this. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Who, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Our creator God there. As you've been following along in this series, I'm kind of curious to know kind of what God has been speaking to you, what he's been bringing up in your hearts and minds. Often when we listen to someone speaking, a kind of first gut thing to do is, well, what's God going to say to me here, you know? But I'd encourage you this morning to listen to someone who is part of this community, who is part of this church. Grab your Bibles. We're going to read from Revelation 3, verses 1 to 6. And the church that we arrive at today is Sardis. I'm going to be reading from The Voice. So it might be a different translation to what you have in front of you. But I'm sure you can follow along. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well. So Revelation 3. Write down my words and send them to the messenger of the church in Sardis. These are the words of the one who has sent has the seven spirits of God, the perfect spirit, and the one who holds the seven stars. I know the things you do. You've claimed a reputation of life, but you are actually dead. Wake up from your death sleep and strengthen what remains of the life you have been given that is in danger of death. I have judged your deeds as far from complete in the sight of my God. Therefore, remember what you've received and heard. It's time to keep these instructions and turn back from your ways. If you do not wake up from your sleep, I will come in judgment. I will creep up on you like a thief. You have no way of knowing when I will come. But there are a few insiders who don't have the stain of evil works on their clothes. They will walk alongside me in white, spotless garments, because they have been proven worthy. The one who conquers through faithfulness, even unto death, will be clothed in white garments. And I will certainly not erase that person's name from the book of life. I will acknowledge this person's name before my father and before his heavenly messengers. Let the person who is able to hear, listen to and follow what the Spirit proclaims to all the churches. When we were discussing during this series, Dave Armstrong sent us an email just kind of divvying up who was going to do each letter. And I saw that I was doing Sardis. He also just sent along kind of a helpful guide, a wee table just explaining different themes between each letter, kind of similarities that you would see between each letter. And one of the columns was commendations. And I had a quick glance, and I saw that a number of the letters had some you know, really positive things to say about the church. And when I came to Sardis, blank. Where is Dave? Where has he gone? I can't see him. Where is he? Um, where is he? Oh, there he is. Gosh, scanning there. So I was thinking, thanks, Dave. Appreciate that. But you know what, as I, as I got into it, I thought, actually, you know what, I was glad I was given this letter to, to talk about. You see, the big theme of Revelation, if you want to kind of give it the, the hashtag, this is the big idea, it offers hope to believers and encourages faithfulness of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of an often threatening pagan culture. As 
G.K. Beale puts it, one of the main goals of the book, therefore, is to exhort believers to remain faithful to Christ in spite of present sufferings and in spite of the temptation to engage in idolatry represented by compromise with the world system because this faithfulness will be rewarded in the heavenly kingdom. Let's just have a quick history lesson on the city of Sardis. The life of Sardis began as a hilltop citadel where the king of Lydia lived. The city developed into a two-part town. The lower town located along the banks of the Pactolus River where the ordinary citizen lived and then the upper town for the wealthy citizens, the royal members, and the, and the palace. Sardis was a center for the traffic of goods and ideas between Mesopotamia and the Greek Ionian settlements, a crossroad of trade and an ideal meeting point for the exchange of ideas, beliefs, customs, knowledge, and new insights. This rich exchange is one of the factors that around 600 BCE allowed the Ionian cities to turn into intellectual leaders of the Greek world. And then between this period and John's vision, Sardis was invaded a number of times, coming under control from the major empires of the day, Persia, Macedonia, and eventually Rome. However, its heritage of being a place of strategic importance, not necessarily in kind of military terms, but as a center of trade for customs, for beliefs and ideas, continued to influence the surrounding area of Lydia. And this was a key part of Sardis' history. And even from this very brief account, you can see that there's a theme developing. Sardis was a city with a name. It had a reputation. It was well regarded. But in truth, this reputation was rooted in its Greek heritage. And it was beginning to fade. It no longer produced the leading thinkers of the day. Sardis was a city which had known fame but whose glory had faded. And in our passage, Christ now warns the church that they're in a similar predicament. The attitude of the city has infected the church. And I want us just to work through some of these texts this morning, bit by bit, and just highlight some of the things I feel God is saying to us as his people. So firstly, I know you. I know the things you do. In verse 1, Jesus' words get to the very heart of the matter. I know the things you do. You've claimed a reputation of life, but you are actually dead. I know the things you do. There's a story told about Mark Twain, who once sent a dozen friends a telegram saying, flee, all is revealed. The next morning, those 12 friends left the town. <laughs> said nothing else, just that. Guilty consciences, I guess. I wonder if you were to count up the number of people who could claim to know the things you do, how many people would you include on that list? It's a bit of a swooping statement, I guess. Someone could state roles in your personal life. I know the things you do as a mother, a father, a son, a daughter, or a friend. Someone could also highlight roles in your professional life. I know the things you do as a teacher, as a nurse, as a lawyer, and so on and so forth. Perhaps to know the things you do involves knowing your routines, those peculiar and persistent habits we all, we all develop and carefully curate in our lives. The way we make a cup of tea, perhaps. Is it tea bag first, then milk, or is it milk, then tea bag? What do you think on that? Some strong opinions, I'm sure, about that. For me, tea bag always first, 
always. Heresy otherwise, I would say. What about even just the noises and the inflections we make when we're stressed or when we're thinking? I'm sure our loved ones can really pick those out and know exactly how we are. Or perhaps even the way we pack a bag of shopping, as I discovered this week, our big weekly shop as a family. And as I started to pack all the frozen and cold stuff into one bag, very logical in my mind, and Naomi, she can't defend herself here. That's really, really bad for her. But anyway, I'm going to keep telling the story. Um, she was just packing things any way, which way, you know, quickly get out of there as possible. And I just said, no, Naomi, we need to do this. I was quite stressed at the moment. We need to make sure the cold stuff stays together so it remains cold. Okay, she was just laughing at me and the cashier was also having a bit of a giggle to herself at my stressed out nature and the fact that these things weren't packed properly. I know the things you do. There are probably many observations and assumptions we can make about someone, but perhaps what is harder to know and for that matter to understand is the truth that often the things we do are kind of multi-layered, aren't they? There is a motivation or a trigger behind our behaviors and attitudes, and it's certainly something harder to know or just to distinguish. Do I even really know why I do the things I do? Steph, at the beginning of her talk a few weeks ago, beautifully reminded us that we come before a God who knows us, who knows us fully. He sees us in all clarity, and he desires to make a connection with us. And that comes from a place of love. It's easy for us to read these seven letters through the lens of a God who is angry, who does not love us. But you know, I love the image in chapter one that depicts Jesus in and amongst the seven lampstands, his church. That the angels, the seven stars, are assigned to each church. And the New Testament reminds us constantly that Jesus considers the church his precious bride, whom he loves and whom he has great concern for her well-being. Therefore, the words, I know the things you do, should fill us more with hope, not dread. Why? Because Jesus' attention is always on us. It never leaves us. Because he longs to see us become fully the person he knows we can be. And he longs for the church to become fully what he knows the church can be in this world. The letter goes on. As we already noted, Sardis has built a reputation of being a vibrant and busy church, full of life. But they have been influenced by the pagan world system. And they've lost their faithful witness to Christ. They are regarded as dead. And in verse 2, Jesus implores the church, wake up from your death sleep and strengthen what remains of the life you've been given that is in danger of death. The phrase wake up is a, is a curious phrase. In the first instance, it's clearly a command, isn't it? Wake up in light of their current state of affairs. But it also offers us a hint of the kind of situation the church in Sardis find themselves in. The thing is, let's be fair to Sardis, Okay. How are you supposed to know to wake up when you're asleep? Have a think about that. How are you meant to know to wake up when you're asleep? To be conscious of your unconscious state. Knowledge of being asleep comes after the fact, doesn't it? When we become awake, when we're slowly rising from our sleep, we realize 
we have been asleep. We can't live in that moment of being aware of our sleep state. That knowledge is never in the present moment. So none of us have the ability to bring ourselves out of a deep sleep. Well, we may talk about an internal alarm clock after a cycle of natural sleep. But in truth, we need some kind of external stimulus to wake us up. Children, an alarm clock, the smell of bacon, perhaps, or the light of day, to stimulate us to rise and wake up. Therefore, this begs the question, what kind of sleep was Sardis in? In the Greek, the term wake up can also be understood as to watch, to be vigilant, or to give strict attention to something. There is this active nature to it. I've told this story before, and I think it's a good example, so I'm going to tell it again. It was quite a while ago, so some of you might have forgotten, but Amelia, when she was two years old, she was just starting to, to say a few words and phrases, and one of the words or phrases she would say to me was, wake up, daddy, wake up. Thing is, it was the middle of the day and I was totally awake. And it became a little bit irritating at first because I'm like, I am awake, come on. But after a while, I realized what she meant in her childlike way. What she wasn't wanting was for me to you know, physically wake up, I was. What she was wanting me to do was to bring my attention to bear on what she was doing. Wake up, daddy, to what I'm doing here. That's what she meant. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is stirring the church in Sardis to wake up, to bring its full attention to bear in all that he is doing on earth to echo his kingdom in, to no longer be a passive agent of the kingdom, but rather an active and dynamic participant of the kingdom of heaven. What might have caused them to fall asleep to this reality? I wonder what causes us to fall asleep to this reality. Naomi, Naomi often comments how quickly I fall asleep, how easy I just drift off. As soon as my head hits the pillow, bang, I'm gone. And the fact that I can do this in any location, in any position, at any time, it's one of those things that is equally a marvel to her and an annoyance at the same time. However, I don't think this is the kind of sleep Jesus is referring to when considering Sardis. It wasn't instantaneous. It was rather a gradual occurrence, a drifting away over time. Sardis had become apathetic to the kingdom. It was riding on a reputation that become concerned more with the attitudes and the opinions of the surrounding culture of the city. When you think about apathy, it means uninterested, passive, detached, lukewarm. And here's the thing, because this attitude occurs over time, it doesn't stand in stark contrast of what came before. It just becomes the norm. And before we knew what was happening, we fall asleep. C.S. Lewis, in his brilliant piece of work, The Screwtape Letters, if you haven't read it, it is excellent. You know what? As I was reading this this week, I just thought this is actually quite a good accompaniment to the Revelation letters, I have to say. And if you don't know anything about it, it's, it's, it's letters from a senior devil to a junior devil, the senior devil who is called Screwtape. And he's imparting wisdom and insight into the human condition and giving his junior devil some advice on how he can thwart people coming, becoming true believers of the way. And in one of his letters, Screwtape is discussing these periods of apathy. The quote comes up behind me. And he says this, 
But there is an even better way of exploiting the trough. I mean, through the patient's own thoughts about it. Let him assume that the first arduous, sorry, the first ardours of his conversion might have been expected to last and ought to have lasted forever, and that his present dryness is an equally permanent condition. Having once got his, this misconception well fixed in his head, your job is to make him acquiesce in the present low temperature of his spirit and gradually become content with it, persuading himself that he's not so low after all. In a week or two, you'll be making him doubt whether the first days of his Christianity were not, perhaps, a little excessive. Talk to him about moderation in all things. A moderated religion is as good for us as no religion at all, and more amusing. Apathy is comforting. It doesn't require much energy. It's like being in a warm bed. You're snuggled under the covers, but totally oblivious to the day that waits in anticipation of your true lives. I wonder what the Spirit is stirring in you at this moment. I wonder what Jesus is saying to us as his church redeemer. What have we fallen asleep to in our lives, in our jobs, in this city, in this country? What have we become blinded to? And what do we even justify to ourselves as that's just the norm? I was watching that, the film 12 Years a Slave. Have you seen it? I saw it a long time ago and it was on TV, so I decided to watch it. And as I was watching it, there was a few moments where um, the white man was um, reading scripture. And it was just devastating because it was a way of justifying slavery. That scripture was used to justify what they were doing. And as I was watching this and as I was thinking about it, I just said, God, what are we blinded to? Because they just thought that was okay. It was normal. It's the way things were. It's what God ordained. I wonder what are there things today that we are blinded to? I wonder what they are. Perhaps Jesus is starting to wake us up to the beautiful and powerful reality of his kingdom. That we would be reminded of what we have forgotten. That what seems impossible is possible in Christ. Perhaps Jesus is causing us to move in faith from what was comfortable to the uncomfortable, from what is known to the unknown, from what is certain to the uncertain, from half-heartedness to whole-heartedness, from the apathetic to the passionate life as true believers of the kingdom of heaven. For those of you that are well-versed in Enneagram, uh, you might have come across uh, one of its authors or one of its uh, contributors, I should say, um, Beatrice Chestnut. And she, she tells a modern parable, and I think it, it fits in quite nicely here. Listen to this. Are you sitting comfortably? Once upon a time, in a not-so-far-away land, there was a kingdom of acorns nestled at the foot of a grand old oak tree. Since the citizens of this kingdom were modern, fully westernized acorns, they went about their business with purposeful energy. And since they were middle-life baby boomer acorns, they engaged in a lot of self-help courses. There were, there were seminars get, called Getting All You Can Out of Your Shell. There were woundedness and recovery groups for acorns who had been bruised in the original fall from the tree. There were spas for oiling and polishing those shells and various therapies to enhance long, 
longevity, and well-being. One day, in the midst of this kingdom, there suddenly appeared a knotty little stranger, apparently dropped out of the blue by a passing bird. He was capless and dirty, making an immediate negative impression on his fellow acorns. And crouched beneath the oak tree, he stammered out a wild tale, pointing upward at the tree. He said, we are that. We are that. Delusional thinking. Obviously, the other acorns concluded, but one of them continued to engage him in conversation. So tell us, how would we become that tree? Well, he said, pointing downward, it has something to do with going into the ground and cracking open that shell. Insane, they responded, totally morbid. Why then, we wouldn't be acorns anymore. Jesus' heart's desire for his church is to discover that there is beautiful, unburdened freedom in following him. That we would discover that his spirit causes a courageous spirit to well up in us to seek justice for the oppressed and the poor in our midst. That his church can be the kind of community that is filled with joyful worship of our king. Redeemer, wake up to that. We are that. And God's heart's desire is that we would all allow our shells, all our fallenness to be cracked open by him. That we would become that he created us to be. In verse 3 it says, Remember what you received and heard. It's time to keep these instructions and turn back from your ways. Remembering. It's probably one of the most important ways to help us be this dynamic kind of community. In order to remember, we must bring our attention to bear on that which is worth our time thinking about. And the more time we spend thinking about such, we begin to be molded and shaped by it. And this is virtually impossible to do on our own. There is so much in this world vying for our attention. We need each other's hold in memory and speak out the promises of God, to rehearse the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus through Eucharist. And that is why we gather every Sunday to worship and hear the word of God. And you know, there'll be times, and perhaps this is you at the moment, when we just don't have that hope. We just can't feel it. And we find ourselves in seasons of despair and darkness. And it's it's those moments that the very act of remembering helps bring us through. And the very act of someone else remembering for us and reminding us helps bring us through. The verse also talks about turning back, an opportunity to respond to the voice of God. I love at the beginning of this chapter of of Revelation letter, and John is described as in worship to Yahweh on the Sabbath. And as he's worshiping God, a voice of Jesus calls out to him. And what's interesting is, is that Jesus isn't standing in front of John. The voice comes from behind him. And I was just thinking about that. And the fact that John actually has to physically turn around and face Jesus, there is an action required to hearing the voice of God. There is always movement when we hear the voice of God. And we're going to have that opportunity later. We're going to have a time to respond in worship, to hear God's voice 
to respond to what he is saying to us. And my a declaration, my hope for you is that when you hear God's voice, you won't harden your hearts, that you'll be brave, that you'll trust him for what he has to say to you. And I would really encourage you to, to come up for prayer at the end from the prayer team. In verses four, Jesus highlights that there are a few insiders that haven't fallen asleep. And verse five gives us a clue to their long obedience. It says here, the one who conquers through faithfulness, even unto death, will be clothed in white garments. And I will certainly not erase that person's name from the book of life. I'll acknowledge this person's name before my father and before his heavenly messengers. This peculiar kind of faithfulness Jesus is calling his church to be can often be under threat from, from two things I want to look at. Disappointment and temporary. Let's look at disappointment first. We're emotional beings, aren't we? And as such, we can rely on our emotions perhaps too much sometimes. They can deceive us. Emotion can be misplaced and misguided, especially during seasons of dryness and disappointment. Let's go back to our, our guide here, screw tape, and hear what he has to say. And just to help us understand this, uh, when he refers to enemy, he's referring to God, the Trinity. Listen to this. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax, which is certainly a coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a church man. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted by the nursery of the Odyssey buckles down to really learning the Greek. It occurs when lovers who have got married then begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin to what he calls his free lovers and servants. Sons is the word he uses. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by their mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own, and there lies our opportunity. But also, remember, there lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion, and therefore much harder to tempt. Our faithfulness as 1 Peter describes, is like gold that is refined by fire. It is through trials and disappointments that our faith is strengthened and refined and results in praise and glory and honor when Jesus is revealed. I want to show a, a very short video here. Uh, it's from the fil film uh, Evan Almighty. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, so hopefully if it works all right. So you're really him, aren't you? You want more proof? I haven't done the philosoph thing in a while. That's all right, I believe you. I just, I don't understand why you chose me. You want to change the world, son. So do I. What? Why an ark? I mean, that's like flood territory. You wouldn't do that again. You wouldn't do that. Would you do that? Let's just say that whatever I do, I do because I love you. Well, then you have to understand that this whole building and art thing is really not part of my plans here. I need to settle into my house. I need to make a good impression at work. <laughs> what? Your plans. <laughs> <laughs> what? 
What are you talking? I'm, we're talking about an ark, right? I mean, an ark? An ark is huge. I don't even know where I would begin. Well, I hear that a lot. People want to change the world, don't know how to begin. You want to know how to change the world, son? One act of random kindness at a time. Here you go. Morgan Freeman is God. What a good choice, eh? I'm not sure what you think about that film. I wonder if it's in your top 10. Probably not. Um, and I hope it isn't because I'm about to tell you that. That sounds good. But that's all it does. It sounds good. Let me explain. How might temporary be a threat to faithfulness? You know, we live in a culture of temporary. Nothing is meant to last very long. In fact, on a commercial level, we're actively encouraged to upgrade on the new mobile phone, the mattress, the kitchen or home. Even in employment, the same job or the same company for life is really the thing of the past. Certainly in the West, we're becoming more transient when it comes to where we live. People don't tend to stay rooted and embedded in community anymore. A month or so ago, I met with the Farmbox team and we, we discussed this in relation to families and individuals we deliver fresh fruit and vegetables to. What does it look like to move from positions of arm length, arm's length charity and power to a place of community and solidarity? Temporary random acts are not the kind of faithfulness Jesus is calling us to because it's about the same faith showing up. Why is that important? Because it speaks against a culture of standoff charity. It speaks against a culture of temporary or conditional relationships. Building trust takes time, and that is very true, particularly in the context of people that have experienced huge fear and mistrust in their journey. Not just losing a home, a country, but their identity and culture is also under threat. Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, puts it like this. Who is it exactly that is flying upside down now? In the shambles of fragmented assurances from the past, our longing for goodness and rightness and acceptance and orientation makes us cling to bumper slogans, body graffiti and shop nostrums in our profound upside downness somehow seem deep, but in fact make no sense. Stand up for your rights sounds so good. How about all I ever need to learn I learned in kindergarten? and practice random kindness and senseless acts of beauty, and so on and so forth. Such sayings contain a tiny element of truth, but if you try to actually plan your life using them, you are immediately deep, deep, deep trouble. They'll head you 180 degrees in the wrong direction. You might as well model your life on Bart Simpson or Seinfeld, but try instead. Stand up for your responsibilities, or I don't know what I need to know, and I must now devote my full attention and strength to finding out or practice routinely purposeful kindness and intelligent acts of beauty. Putting these into practice immediately begins to bring truth, goodness, strength, and beauty into our lives. I'm going to invite the band up. And as I do that, just some final thoughts as we come into land. When we consider the story of God, when we consider the story of creation, bringing order from chaos 
light where there was darkness, life from death. When we consider the whole narrative of Scripture, the journey of Israel to a little baby in a stable, the Son of God, God Himself coming to earth, coming to a world, coming to heal, coming to teach, who then died, who was rejected but then rose again. And not leaving us on our own, he gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you consider all of this, right down to Revelation, in all of this, there is nothing random. There is nothing temporary about it. These are the beautiful, purposeful, ordered and routine acts of goodness and kindness. And this is the kind of story that we were created to rehearse in our lives. This is the kind of story that we as his church are to demonstrate to the world. That is faithfulness. We come before a faithful God. And I'm gonna give Screwtape the last word because he has a lot of wisdom. Sooner or later, God withdraws. If not in fact, at least from their conscious experience all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creatures to stand up on its own leg, to carry out from the will alone duties which are all lost relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. We can drag our patients along by continual tempting because we design them only for the table and the more their will is interfered with, the better. He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks, why is he forsaken? And yet, still obeys faithfulness. Would you stand with me? We're going to come to the table. It's a beautiful reminder of those last words of screw tape there. That Jesus, when he hung on the cross, in the midst of his anguish, in the midst of his decision to just be there and the fact that he would rather not be there in some ways because of the pain and the suffering that he was experiencing the weight of sin of all of humanity on him and God in abandoning him my father my father why have you forsaken me yet he still remained because of his love for us I'd love it for us to respond to what God has been saying for those of you who are on the prayer team, if you can maybe come up to, to my right, please, that would be great as we, as we sing and worship. Lord, we just, we lift, we lift our yes to you this morning, Lord. Yes, that we might be woken up to your reality of your kingdom. Yes, to all that you have for us as your church, that we would become that beautiful bride you know we can be. Lord, we thank you for the truth that even in our stumbles, Lord, that you are delighted with our perseverance. 
our faithfulness, Lord. And I pray that by your spirit, you'll continue to make us those faithful people that you know we can be in your name. Amen. So come, eat together, share the wine, and sing our praises to our King. Amen.